The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2018 New Year's Conference. More information about the New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com. I'm talking about a low view of self that results from a real awareness of your God separation. What I mean is that you become aware of the holiness of God, you become aware of the big old problem you have that not only do I have bad, but I don't have that which is 100% perfectly good, and therefore I have no hope. And even when God says, I've got a rescuer for you and his name's Jesus, you still go through life with this true sense of personal humility and a low view of self that knows that it is by grace you've been saved. So that's what I'm talking about in the first half of the combo. Low view of self. The second half of the combo is this. High view from others. So if the first half of the combo we have low view of self, the second half is a high view from others. That is public honor. Our lives should have a loveliness about them. The Christian's life is meant to catch the eye of the watching world. Do you believe that? See, I, I think it's, it's people would not question the first half of the combo, that we are meant to have a low view of self. But for some reason, and I've tried to, uh, you know, just open our eyes to the scripture of who God has meant for us to be in this world, but for some reason we're hesitant to hold our lives accountable to the reality that others should have a high view of us. To reject such a thing is to close your eyes to the scriptures. Yesterday morning I mentioned Titus 3.8. Those who insist on these things that we are not saved by our works will be devoted to good works. And this is excellent and profitable or beautiful and beneficial to the world. Your life is meant to be beautiful and beneficial to the world. And when it happens, they will hold a high view of you. And we'll even get into when they disagree about your God, but they see your life and they have nothing to say. James 3.13, look at this. I'll give you a couple of scriptures. Uh, and, and this is just to prime the passage because I want you to chew on this and think about it and go ahead and raise your objections. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Do you see it? The Greek Uh, for this it literally and I put it on on the uh, screen it literally would be translated by his or her beautiful manner of life let them show their works and did you see it in the meekness that's humility of wisdom so here you have in your beautiful manner of life public honor high view from others show your works in the meekness of wisdom personal humility let me give you uh, let me show it to you another place we could go to many uh, this one is, don't, don't go there yet, uh, this one is, is back to back. And the reason why I like this one is because uh, this one is in the context of 1 Timothy 3. And 1 Timothy 3, if you know, are the essential qualities of spiritual leaders. And Paul begins 1 Timothy 3 and he says this, if anyone, and guess what the Greek for anyone means? Anyone, yeah, you know, we're scholars here today. If anyone aspires to the task of a spiritual leader, he desires a noble task. This is what it's saying. Anyone and everyone should aspire to this. And just because you aspire to something doesn't mean you're going to acquire it. Everyone should aspire it. It doesn't mean you're going to acquire it. 
He's calling everybody to this. Everybody should read 1 Timothy 3 and say, I want to be this type of person. And you know what he says in 6 and 7? It's a marvelous combo. Watch this. 1 Timothy 3, 6. He must not be a new Christian, lest he become puffed up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So what is the warning here? The obvious quality that is being rejected is that of personal, pl- personal pride, right? The young Christian that's given leadership might be tempted to think too highly of themselves. So he's saying you should have a low view of yourself, right? You shouldn't think too highly of yourself. All right, watch this. Watch where he goes next. Next verse. Moreover, you look, it's in your Bible too. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. That's the same language in the previous verse. So in one sense, you must not be given leadership too quickly that you would have a high view of yourself, but you also should not live in such a way that others would have a low view of you. That's a marvelous combo right there. We must not think too highly of ourselves, but others must not think too lowly of us. God is calling you to this. This is what I want to send you out into 2019. A low view of self combined with a high view from others. Now, it looks good on the screen, but it's no easy task. Just think about it for a second. It's easy to think low of yourself when everybody else does also, right? Oh yeah, I got a lot of humility, you know? And it's easy to get public honor when you're all about your own glory. But that's not the call. The call that God would hang out before you this morning is a low view of self and a high view from others. I hope you're inspired. I hope you wanna meet the man whom Jesus marveled at. I told you, I think it was last night or morning or just sometime in the previous few days, I told you about my man Epaphras. Uh, well, there's a, second, uh, there's a second man that I would say with Epaphras are my two favorite men in all the scripture, and it's the man we're going to meet this morning. Uh, he's, a, he's a vision for how I want to live my life. Now, of course, I got Jesus in there. Jesus is my first favorite man, all right? Um, so, yeah, like, he ain't even like Jesus. No, I like Jesus. Uh, but, but the Roman centurion is who we're going to meet this morning. And we read about the Roman centurion in a number of Gospels, but the most interesting placement is in Luke chapter 7 because the Roman centurion is placed right immediately following Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. You have the Sermon on the Mount, and then you have the Roman centurion. And most commentators would say that the centurion is placed right there because Luke wants us to see that in the Sermon on the Mount, we have theology taught. And in the Roman centurion, we have theology lived. And I just, this is where I want to end because in my time with you, every message, I don't know if you know, I've pressed into that. I don't care what you say, who you say is in authority in your life, who you want to be in authority in your life. I want to know who's actually in authority. And I'm not asking the question about what you want your bullseye to be, but what actually, if your life could speak, is your bullseye? Is it to be a force for good? And last night, whatever you do, don't get stuck in the corner of your life watching personal involvement in God's mission go by, but actually get into the mission. So this morning is perfect for us to end by looking at somebody who not only 
knew this marvelous combo who was living it. The guy who led me to Christ, he used to tell me, knowledge without application leads to frustration. Maddie, don't fill your head with knowledge and not apply it. Everything you learn, ask the question, by the power of your spirit, how can I apply this? This was not a frustrated man. The centurion was living it. And I want you to see it. And I'm just begging you would consider uh, allowing this to diagnose your life and see if you would live it. So let's get into the passage. Here we go, Luke 7, 1 and 2. After he finished all his sayings, Sermon on the Mount. After the sermon was finished, we got to see it lived. After he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him, the centurion. So this, this verse is uh, shocking all around. First of all, it's shocking that of all people that Jesus would highlight and that the scriptures would highlight as someone whom Jesus marveled at, the Roman centurion is one of the last people you would expect because the Romans were in opposition to the Jewish people. And this man was a leader in that army. Some of you, some of you just don't, you feel like, like God couldn't use you. Uh, just read the Bible of the usable people, the ones that God chooses. And, and actually the scripture would give us a different problem. Those who feel like God should use you. Uh, may, maybe you don't have uh, much of a chance. Uh, this Roman is shocking, but it's more shocking that, that he's a Roman centurion. The second piece is that he valued his servant. Y'all see this? He had a servant who was sick at the point of death, and the Roman centurion highly valued him. Listen to uh, what one commentator says about Roman centurions, and, or in general, uh, servants in that day. His care for his servant set him apart from just about everyone else in the Roman world. In fact, the, in the Roman Empire, servants didn't matter. If they suffered, it didn't matter. If they lived, it didn't matter. If they died, it didn't matter. They were of no consequence. There was literally within their laws that if there was a broken cart or a servant that was unable to perform their duties or whatever, you were legally allowed to get rid of them. You fill in the details. And here we have a Roman centurion who has no reason to love a servant. And it says that he highly valued him. And this is the first glimpse into theology lives. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm taking this passage. Watch this. This is so good. And I'm going to open your eyes to see that in this passage is theology lived by taking you back just a chapter before, all throughout, and show you that this man lived what Jesus just taught. Here we go. The first one is this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you, Jesus said? For even sinners do the same. So here's a centurion in a shocking relationship of loving someone who could do nothing for him. And before I move on, we're just going to walk through the passage this morning. I want to note something. This is, uh, if you would go back to the previous uh, verse. I want you to note something. We are about to witness what is unquestionably the Roman centurion's finest hour in his entire life. God in the flesh marveling at him. If God ever marveled at you in your life, it would be your finest hour. And I want you to notice the context where it all began. It all began in a time of trial. 
Do you see that? The Roman centurion had someone whom he valued highly who was sick to the point of death. It was out of a time of trial that God was walking this man up to his finest hour in life. And I don't want to skip over that because this says to me that some of you, the very circumstances you're actually trying to run away from, God is actually using to lead you to something beautiful in your walk with him. So James 1, 2 through 5 or 2 through 4, but, you know, the, our, our view of trials is get out of them as fast as we can. James would say, no, count it all joy because you know that God is not wasting your trials. He's working in you. Without this, you would be imperfect, lacking. We don't try to get out as fast as we can. We try to get out as much as we can because we know God's doing a work. Okay, let's move on. So when the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So this is just shocking, shocking, shocking. It's shocking that the Roman centurion would ask Jewish elders to do something on his behalf. They were enemies. He has a servant who is sick and he goes to the elders, the Jewish elders, and he says, will you go and get Jesus to do something on my behalf? That's shocking that he would ask them. It's more shocking that they went, they went. Look at the next verse, it says this. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. And watch this, y'all, here we go. Let's see if you see the first half of the marvelous combo. He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the man who built us our synagogue. You know what this is? This is public honor. This is a high view from others. They are saying in the presence of Jesus, this is a worthy man. The Greek word for worthy is axios, or as my blue letter Bible dude says. Y'all don't have blue letter Bible, please get it. Um, you just, just take a verse, you click on it, and then you click on another little tab, and it takes you to all the Greek words or the Hebrew words, and then you click on the word. And then you can listen to my man say, axios. You know, it's so good. Some words, literally, I just be like, put oxios, oxios, oxios. Uh, anyway, sorry, that's weird. Uh, but, but seriously, um, you, you know what the Hebrew, oh, you know what? I'm going to add something. I'm going to save that. I'm going to put this in my notes. Uh, we'll come back to another Hebrew word. And I was going to say, if I forget it, remind me, but that doesn't work, right? Because it's too many people. Uh, but um, I need a pen. Uh, but uh, so, uh, yeah, it tells me to thrill. Uh, oh, dang. I was thinking that could be my second finest hour if I could catch both of those. Um, but uh, but uh, hold on one second. I'm sorry to do this, y'all. Um, but I think that there's a point um, right there. Um, and I just got it. All right, so uh, axios, which means weighty. They're saying about this man, he's worth his weight in gold. He is axios. He's a weighty man. He's worth his weight in gold. Jesus said in Matthew 10, when you enter a town, look for a man who's worthy. So, so Jesus is saying that there are worthy people out there. Don't for a second think that Christianity is all about a low view of self and not a high view from others. Jesus himself said to his disciples, I want you to find a worthy man, a worthy woman. Would you be found? If Jesus were to send people on your campus saying, go to that campus and find a worthy man, a man or woman of peace, would you be found? Are you an axios man or woman? Are you a worthy man or woman? 
And once again, we're told why they say he is worthy. Look at this. It says he is worthy to have you do this. And we're told two things. He loves our nation. He loves the enemy. And look at this. Let's go to the next uh, Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And not only did he love, but he was a generous man. The wording in, um, in verse uh, 4 and 5, he is the one who built us our synagogue. It's literally, he built our synagogue. He financed our synagogue to be built. This was a generous man. And guess what that reminds me of? The Sermon on the Mount. Look at it again. It's, it's right there. It's in your scripture. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will you put in your lap. For with the measure you give, it will be given back to you. Y'all, knowledge without application leads to frustration. There are many frustrated Christians in this room because you have theology taught, but not theology lived. And the Roman centurion is begging, begging us to say, live it. It's an amazing scene. It's a scene of a man whom the people is saying he is worthy and Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say he's not worthy because before them, the centurion was worthy. You got to get this. Before the people, he was worthy. He was beautiful and beneficial to the world. And it should be said about us, if we're following Christ, that we're worthy men and women. It should be said about us that what is producing from our life is something that the world sees and says there's a loveliness about it. Once again, Sermon on the Mount. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. How are you known? How are you known? If people reject you, listen to me here. If people reject you, it should be because of the way you respond to God, not the way you relate to them. Let me say that again. If they reject you, it should be because of the way you respond to God. Dang, Matty B, that's some crazy stuff. You know, that, that, I, you, know you do it, but that's, that's, that's crazy. Not the way you relate to them. It should be the way that you hear from God, not the way you speak to them. Some of us, look at, uh, did, did I give you 1 Peter 2.12? If not, um, here it is. Live such good lives among those who don't believe that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If you are in a time of need on your campus, would anyone come to your aid because you're known, you have a reputation of being a worthy man or a worthy woman on your campus? What view of others have of you? They viewed the Roman centurion highly and they pleaded with Jesus to help him. And so he went. So watch this. That's just one half of the combo. Watch this. Let's go on. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, this is the point of the story where we ought to really start to ask the question, what's going on here? You ought to underline, he is worthy, and then you ought to underline, I am not worthy. And I'm going to come back to uh, some questions we ought to ask about that, but this is where I'm going to add my other Hebrew word, because I just want to make a note that, did you know who brings the message of the centurion's messiness? Who brings the message of his messiness? His friends. 
want you to think about this for a second. I love that his friends knew his junk. Some of us live in such a way that we're always putting our best foot forward. No one knows us. No one really knows us. And and you know what the Hebrew word for alone is? If you go in your blue letter Bible and you click Genesis 3.18, it's not good for man to be alone. And you click alone and then you click, let me hear the voice of that dude tell me what that Hebrew word is. You know what he'll say? Bad. Bad. And I just love that alone is bad. Now you say that's just a play on words, but the scripture would say, no, actually that's, that's a real truth. It just happens to be a coincidence there. You ought to think that alone is bad. It's bad, man. Um, and some of us are living that way. <laughs> like, uh, let, me, let me add, let me, let me put in something. Y'all know the story of uh, the dude Vincent Van Gogh? Uh, I wish I would have added this. Uh, the Vincent Van Gogh, he was a famous painter. And y'all know uh, Vincent Van Gogh, there was a girl that he really liked. Um, we should have put this in a relationship seminar, baby, wherever you at. Uh, there was a girl I really liked. Vincent Van Gogh was like, I want to give her a gift. I want to give her something special. So I would have loved to have been in the room uh, to see the, the drawing board on how he came up with this gift. But, but man, it was like chocolates, you know, nah, they, you know, chocolates, flowers, like we did in the contest. And finally he was like, I know what I ought to give her. I got the perfect gift, my ear. It's a true story. Um, oh, he, my man cut his ear off and he brought his ear to the, to the girl and, and she looked at it and she said you're crazy get away from me and so guess what he did he passed out because of the loss of blood and he woke up in a mental hospital and guess what he did while he was in the mental hospital he painted some self-portraits but you know what's interesting about all the self-portraits that he painted after that one-sided one-sided. Which side did Vincent Van Gogh show the world? We would answer that with the good ear because of course you put your best foot forward, right? Some of y'all, all you show your friends is the good ear and you go, you Google it, self-portrait with a bandaged ear. My man constantly was putting forward a portrait of himself with a bandaged ear so all the world would say what happened to his ear and the story would be told of his just ridiculousness. And some of you, you got some ridiculous stories in your past. You might not have given a girl your ear, but you've done some pretty stupid things and you know what? None of your friends know it. None of them know it. And the, the, the scripture would say that's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, and breaks out against all sound judgment. Proverbs 18.1. Okay. Oh, how did you do that? Um, I didn't know. Thank you, my man. Um, all right. Let me, let me test them. Let me test them. When I was five years old, I'm just saying, wouldn't that be crazy? It's like, oh, this is getting freaky. Uh, you know, um, when I was 60, I wonder what I'm going to look like. Oh, man. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> great. Yes. No, no, that's too much here. Um, all right. Uh, where are we at? Um, the friends went. That's where we at. Okay. The friends, the friends brought the bad news. Okay. Here, here's, here's uh, you need to ask a question. You need to ask a question. What's going on here? He, they, the, 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 the community says he's worthy. His friends bring another message from him that says, I'm not worthy. You need to ask the question, is this hypocrisy? 
uh, did he fool them? Was this man living in such a way before people that he really was not in reality? Is that what's going on here? And it's not what's going on here. When they say to Jesus, he is worthy, they are speaking of his standing before men. And he was a worthy man. And when he says before Jesus, I am not worthy, he was speaking of his standing before God. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Got any biblical support? Oh yeah. I actually got two things in the text. The first is this. Notice that he says, Lord. So when, when, when the message comes, I am not worthy, God is clearly in view here. I want you to see that, okay? And, God, and when he says, Lord, he's saying, one with all authority, one who is self-sufficient, one who is perfect. But there's a second reason. And, and, and this, is, this, is, uh, I admit, this is just like a little plug for Blue Letter Bible this morning. There's a second reason. I want you to see this. When it says I, he is worthy, it uses the Greek word axios, which means weighty. He's worth his weight in gold. But when he says I am not worthy, he doesn't use, you've got worthy, worthy, but it's not the same Greek word. It's the word hykonos. Hykonos. And hykonos means to not have enough, to be insufficient, to have fallen short. You see that? He is worthy. He's worth his weight in gold. I'm insufficient. This man knew that, that in the presence of God, just as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, this man knew of his God's separation. He knew of his need before, the God, before God. He was worthy before men, and he knew he was unworthy before God. This is personal humility. This is a low view of self that comes straight from awareness of God's separation. You got to see that. You got to see that, that when I say a high view of others and low view of self, they're not at odds here. You can have a high view from others. You can have public honor and you can still be someone of personal humility because you understand, I don't have enough. I've fallen short. And look what happens. Oh, this is beautiful. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And, my, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is so important. Some of you right here, you might for the first time get Christianity. The Roman centurion was aware of his sin. He was aware that he was insufficient and unworthy to come before the presence of God. But he also understood that his sin did not prevent him from asking God to work on his behalf. You got to see that. Even though he was unworthy to be in the presence of God, his unworthiness did not prevent him to ask God to work on his behalf. That's Christianity, friends. See, some people feel like they are good enough for God to work in their life. It's not Christianity. Others feel like you're too bad for God to work in your life. If you think about it, thinking you do have enough good works or you don't is still relying on the same thing. Your good works, right? Neither of those is Christianity. The heart of Christianity 
is recognizing that you are not worthy, but your unworthiness doesn't prevent you from asking for God to work on your behalf. It actually qualifies you to ask him. And the Roman centurion knew this. And then he knew that Jesus had all authority. And do you see what? Do you see this there? And that you would use your authority for my good. So he asked him. And here we go. I'm going to conclude the passage and then bring us to a, cl- to a close. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Okay, this man had public honor and personal humility. He had a low view of self and a high view from others. This was the centurion's finest moment in all of his life. And I'm calling you to be like the centurion. Live a worthy life. Men and women, live a worthy life. Be known as a loving man and woman on your campus. Be known as a generous man and a generous woman on your campus. Be known as a sacrificial man and a sacrificial woman on your campus. Be known as an axios man and an axios woman on your campus. But watch this, watch this. This is so beautiful. Don't for a second confuse what it is that God marvels at. The world will marvel at your good works. And let them do so. Let them do so. I hope my city looks at me and says he's a worthy man. Let them marvel at my good works. As long as I know, as long as it's settled in my heart, that's not what God marvels at. The world marvels at what I do for the world. But do you notice what Jesus marvels at? Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith in the work that Jesus could do for him. You see that? I think we got it. Jesus doesn't marvel at the centurion's good works. The world marvels at that and let them marvel. Some of you need to ask the question, why is the world not marveling at my good works? But don't for a second confuse. That's what Jesus marveled at. It didn't say when they said he's worthy, he loves, he's generous. It didn't say and Jesus marveled. No, the world marvels at that. It wasn't until he recognized that the centurion understood that his God separation didn't prevent him from asking God to work on his behalf that he said he marveled. You got to get that. Let me say it one more way. The centurion's greatest moment was not him doing something great for God. That was his greatest moment before the people. It was him believing that God could do something great for him. Amen? All right. Uh, Before I step down, let me me mention... uh, two things in closing. Number one, I really believe, uh, New Year's conference, I really believe that the Roman centurion's example is the need of the hour on our college campuses. I really believe that this man, personal humility rooted in the gospel, public honor rooted in the fruit, oh, fruited in the gospel, ooh, rooted in the gospel, fruited in, I don't know, um, personal humility, public honor, and this is why. Over the last 10 years, something definitely has happened and, and, and there's been a shift in people's initial barriers to Christianity. People's initial first barriers are no longer objective and intellectual barriers. Their first barrier. See, their barriers used to be, how can I believe the Bible was actually written by God? How can there be a God with so much suffering in the world? 
That, that, how could you believe in creation or evolution? You see, that was an intellectual objective barrier, and that was the first one that you would face. But that's not the first barrier you're facing on your campus. You might meet some of those people, but the first barrier that you're meeting stereotypically on your campuses is not an intellectual and objective one. It is an emotional and subjective one. Why would I ever want to be a Christian anyways? Aren't Christians just hypocrites and judgmental? And isn't organized religion just a way to hide manipulation and power? Why would I ever want to be a Christian anyway? And that's why I believe that if you are going to actually find yourself in significant conversations, significant relationships, then apologetics, defending the faith, that's, that's the second door. You lead with hospitality. Hospitality is not just inviting people into your home. God is calling for hospitable Christians on our campuses. Warm, welcoming, inviting, courteous Christians who create an environment that is safe. I really believe this. Here's the question. I really believe that, that one of your number one calls is we, we must grow in our ability to live out what we know about God and ourselves in a warm and a winsome way. I'm convinced of this. That, that there's too many lives that lack public honor. And you know what? It affirms what those outside the faith feel, which is why would I want to be a Christian anyway? And I think you get around the Roman centurion and they would say, uh, I, you know, I, I don't really think what he believes is right, but that's a good man right there. I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to be with him. Because I believe at the end of the day, every single person is going to want to talk about God. But the question they're going to ask is, do I know any Christian who is safe and comfortable enough to ask. Do I know any Christian? <clears throat> Will any Christian come to their mind who they feel is comfortable and safe and desirable to talk to? And so uh, here's, my, here's my personal um, uh, goal in relating to people. I want to be the kind of person that another would want to reach out to when God begins to stir in their heart. Uh, that's my secret sauce of evangelism. I'm always positioning myself. I'm positioning myself to be the kind of person that you would want to reach out to when God begins to stir in your heart. <clears throat> and guess what? It happens. It happens quite often because God's done a work of personal humility and public honor in my life. <clears throat> and uh, so I'm going to end with this. Uh, how does this happen? How can you be a man or a woman like this? Uh, and I'll end with a story. So when uh, in 2006, when our oldest was three years old, we moved to Blacksburg, Virginia. And uh, my son and I, we were uh, sitting in the living room and we were playing a little game. So you can, you can put up a, a picture. Uh, and the game was uh, we were building blocks. And uh, we would build the blocks. It was a tower. And guess what we would do after we built the blocks? Knock it down. Uh, we didn't talk about who lived there, if there was any babies and what they were doing. That's what I do with Eliana. Uh, but with Isaiah, he would just say, knock it down. And, uh, and I would knock it down and he would say, daddy, what knocked it down? I would say, an elephant. And he would laugh. Or I would say, a crazy cowboy. And he would laugh. And he would always say, again, again. It was like, again, no end, again. And we would build this and knock it down. What knocked it down? Did it about 10 times in. I mean, dude, kids do this all day. You know what I'm saying? It's like 10 times in, uh, knocked it down. He said, Daddy, what knocked it down? I said, the wind. He said, it wasn't the wind. 
I said, nah, son, it was the wind. Uh, he goes, no, it wasn't the wind. I said, Isaiah, it was the wind. And then in the most mature way, I said, I'm playing too, you know? I, and, and he looked at me and he goes, he goes, dad, it couldn't be the wind. There are no trees in here. Now, if y'all know, Isaiah was three years old, right? But, but this, is the, this is the future Pokemon trading card champion in the world here. You know, this guy's mind's always been, uh, been a step ahead. And so I thought about it. There were no trees in here. It couldn't be the wind. And then I got it. And I got it. See, in Blacksburg, it was, it's often very windy. And when, when the wind was howling, we would uh, call the kids to our big kitchen window and Isaiah would say, he would say, Mommy, Daddy, the trees are dancing. And we would say, yes, son, it sure is windy. And at some point, Isaiah reasoned that the trees which he could see start to dance. And it creates this thing we can't see called wind. And it couldn't have been the wind that knocked that down because there were no trees in here, Daddy. Here's what I want you to say. Hope you get this. If you're a Christian, you're not a dancing tree. You don't do outward things. You don't put on personal humility, put on public honor, and then it creates this thing, invisible thing we call God working in your life. The Christian life actually is the way we know when to really be. That there is an invisible reality called wind. And when it picks up, it begins to make in or visible effects called trees dancing. There is, if you're a Christian, the spirit of God in you. And when you truly repent of your sin and trust in God, and when you begin to submit yourself to the word of God and connect yourself to the people of God, guess what? The spirit of God begins to work in you in such a way that it produces outward effects like personal humility and public honor. So don't for a second think you're a dancing tree. You're not Christians. All right, so here's my charge to you. Submit to his rightful and delightful authority in your life. For the rest of your life, in every area of your life, you aim the bullseye at being a force for good. And of all the good you're going to do, don't leave being personally involved in God's mission to chance. And lastly, go into 2019 begging for a low view of self and a high view from others. And ask God by his spirit to do this in you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this week. Thank you for these men and women who you have brought here and for your work in their life. Lord, we pray in the coming days and weeks and months that you would recall to mind the many things they've heard. And Lord God, that first of all, that, that we would know that through you, Christ, we can be reconciled to you. That through you, Christ, we can be reconciled to one another. And that, Lord, you launch us into this world following you underneath your authority and living to be a force for good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank y'all. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach.